Welcome to another CARES VetMed podcast episode. I'm Tracy Mahoney, and in this episode, we're going to take a look at the parts of the anesthesia machine. So I want to start off this episode by saying that I'm a firm believer that the level of comprehension of the anesthesia machine uh, is directly linked to patient care and outcome. Therefore, it is the responsibility of the nurse or technician performing anesthesia to have a solid understanding of the parts of the anesthesia machine. So thank you for taking a listen to this episode, and I hope that it will be a refresher for those of you performing anesthesia. Let's start by talking about what the anesthesia machine does. It provides a means to deliver inhalant molecules as well as oxygen to our patients. It contains those molecules within the anesthesia circuit to prevent environmental exposure to team members. It monitors pressure within the circuit, which can give insight to pressure within our patient's lungs. It allows for positive pressure ventilation, where we can provide ventilatory support to our patients if they are not breathing well on their own. And it removes expired CO2 from the circuit so that our patients do not rebreathe CO2. As previously mentioned in episode two, Passing Gas, the inhalant agents and, and their delivery by means of the anesthesia machine rely on the respiratory system to maintain general anesthesia. And I'll just review a few key points real quick. So the respiratory cycle utilizes pressure gradients to diffuse CO2 and oxygen between blood vessels and lungs. During inhalation, CO2 diffuses from blood into the lungs while oxygen diffuses from the lungs into the blood. During exhalation, our CO2 expired into the environment leaves the body while oxygen-rich blood returns to the heart to be delivered to vital organs. Through pressure gradients, molecules will pass from higher pressure to lower pressure. This is how our inhalant molecules get to the central nervous system, where that shift of molecules occurs until equilibrium is achieved. Oxygen, as an example, has a partial pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury in the alveoli, while that same molecule's pressure is only 40 millimeters of mercury when it is in the blood. This means that equilibrium, there's two and a half times more oxygen molecules in the blood than in the lungs. Now, during anesthesia, we monitor our oxygen saturation within the arterial blood via our pulse oximetry. And then we monitor our patient's ventilation status by monitoring the expired CO2 via capnography. The reason I'm mentioning this is that it is important to note that if you're not using capnography in your practice during anesthesia, you're only gathering information for half of that patient's respiratory cycle. So this capnography is really, really important tool to use during general anesthesia. Now, the most common anesthesia machines in veterinary medicine will use oxygen as their carrier gas for the inhalant for delivering those inhalants to the patients during general anesthesia. So if we take a look at our oxygen source, it can be broken down into three distinct pressures. We have high, intermediate, and low. The high pressure refers to our starting source of oxygen, be it an oxygen tank or maybe an oxygen compressor that will pull in room air and concentrate the oxygen. So the gases at cylinder pressure can be as high as 2,200 pounds per square inch or PSI. Think about your car tire. As comparison, those tire pressures are usually around 34 PSI. So these oxygen tanks are the real deal, um, and they should never be stored in a way where they may topple over. And if you want to explore that thought further, check out the Mythbusters episode called Air Cylinder Rocket, where they deliberately knocked the pressure regulator off of an air cylinder and captured the damage it created. So these tanks contain volumes of compressed or pressurized 
gas, and that pressure drives the oxygen from the tanks through the oxygen lines into the anesthesia machine. So the pressure gauge on the oxygen tanks measure the pressure within the tank, which is helpful in determining how full the tanks may be. And then there's a pressure regulator, which decreases the oxygen pressure as it leaves the tank to maintain a constant outflow. For example, the E-cylinder tanks contain 2,200 PSI at full volume of about 700 liters of oxygen. And the pressure gauge when the tank is full will read 2,200 PSI and will decrease as the tank is used. And then the pressure regulator will decrease that oxygen outflow pressure to 50 PSI. And the 50 PSI is where we get into our intermediate pressure. So the oxygen pressure after it passes through the pressure regulator is reduced to 50 PSI. This is the pressure present within the oxygen lines, which in the United States are green, um, the green hoses, which is the color coded for oxygen specific equipment in the United States. Now, these pressures are still higher than the pressure of your average car tire. Those oxygen lines will deliver oxygen to the flow meter on the anesthesia machine, as well as an oxygen flush valve, if present, as the ventilator. Now, the oxygen flush valve, when you press it, will bypass the flow meter and vaporizer and provide a volume of oxygen quickly to the anesthesia circuit at a pressure of 50 PSI. Because this high pressure, patients should never be attached to the anesthesia circuit when the flush valve is pressed due to increased risk of inadvertent inflation, including overinflation to the patient's lungs. The other thing to note is that it will also dilute the anesthetic agent since it's bypassing the vaporizer. As the oxygen passes through the flow meter, we get into our low pressure part of the oxygen's journey. So the pressure of gases flowing from the flow meter through the vaporizer, then the common gas outlet and into the anesthesia circuit, measuring around 50, 15 PSI, where atmospheric pressure is about 14 PSI. Now, within the anesthesia breathing circuit, there's a different pressure unit of measurement that's utilized, which is centimeters of water, and that pressure is visible on the pressure manometer. So if we were to further delve into the low pressure parts of the anesthesia system, we can talk a little bit more about the flow meter. So oxygen passes through the flow meter and the flow meter allows the user to set the amount of gas entering into the anesthesia breathing circuit in a rate of liters per minute. So the flow rates are determined based on the patient's weight and the desired flow rate. Now, there's no standardized system existing to differentiate between the three flow rates, which are high, intermediate, and low. So the important thing to note is that we do have our patients have a metabolic oxygen requirement. So depending on the source and study that you read, um, references refer to the metabolic oxygen requirement of our small animals to from anywhere from four to 10 mils per kg per minute. Now, I usually will round up to 10 mils per kg per minute to be sure that I'm, a, that I'm calculating for and exceeding a little beyond the oxygen requirements and not under calculating. Now, there are factors that will affect metabolism um, and higher metabolism will increase our metabolic oxygen demand. So if we can think of hyperthyroidism, shivering, hyperthermia, increased stress, etc. 
Now, if we talk about the flow rates on the flow meter, high flow rates refer to anything over 60 mils per kg per minute. So calculating a high flow rate generally will be 60 to 100 mils per kg per minute. However, we do also use higher rates than that in patients that are on the non-rebreather circuit. And those rates go from 200 to 400 mils per kg per minute. Now, the intermediate flow rates are anywhere from 40 to 60 mils per kg per minute, and then low flow rates are going to be about 20 to 40 mils per kg per minute. So the low flow rates are just a little above the metabolic oxygen requirements of 10 mils per kg per minute. And the reason we would use low flow rates is that it actually will reduce the amount of waste that we're dumping into the environment. So less oxygen usage and less inhalant usage as well. Low flow rates can also be referred to as a closed circuit. Now, it doesn't mean that we're closing the anesthesia circuit off from the gas escaping the machine, what it means is that the patient is using a majority, if not all of the oxygen. So we're getting the most use out of our oxygen delivery to our patient. As the oxygen passes through the flow meter, it then enters into the vaporizer. So the most common versions of vaporizers used in small animal practice are called variable bypass vaporizers. So within the variable bypass vaporizer, there are two chambers that are present, uh, a bypass chamber and an inhalant or vaporization chamber. So the setting selected on the vaporizer dial, so the percentage that is is set will determine the amount of carrier gas that passes through the chamber that contains the inhalant, while the remainder of the carrier gas volume enters into the bypass chamber. Now, when the vaporizer is set to zero, all of the carrier gas enters into the bypass chamber as it passes through the vaporizer. And then as you increase the dial on the vaporizer, more gas will enter into the inhalant chamber, increasing the percentage of inhalant molecules passing through the vaporizer into the common gas outlet and into the anesthesia breathing circuit. Additionally, most commonly used anesthesia machines in veterinary medicine use a vaporizer out of circuit or VOC system. The common gas outlet refers to the universal attachment from the outflow side of the vaporizer that brings the inhalant and oxygen gases as they enter into the anesthesia circuit. And the anesthesia circuit can either be a rebreathing or circle circuit where a patient can rebreathe a previously expired breath after it goes through a chemical process to break down and prevent rebreathing of CO2 or can enter the non-rebreathing circuit, which provides a patient with a fresh gas for each inhaled breath, but does require that higher fresh gas flow rates to achieve this. Now, if we're looking at the differences between the two circuits, the rebreathing circuit, aka the circle circuit, has some benefits that include the ability to use lower flow rates of oxygen, so we're going to have less waste, you could argue there's less body heat loss because they're able to rebreathe their previously warm expired breath. Um, and then rebreathing of the expired CO2 is difficult because of the um, neutralization that occurs with the sodosorb granules. The disadvantages of the rebreathing circuit include the increased resistance within the, the circle 
due to the CO2 absorbent and the unidirectional valves. So for smaller patients, it's a lot harder for them to pull volume through all of those granules and into their lungs. There's also more parts to the machine. So there's more ways for the malfunction of the machine as well as more maintenance. And there can be increased dead space at the endotracheal tube connection to the breathing hose. The other thing to note is that there's larger volumes within the breathing circuit, which is going to impact the time to equilibrium when changes are made to the vaporizer setting. So let's talk really quick about what I mean by that. So um, I just want to define a term called time constant. So time constant refers to the anesthesia machine volume, which includes the reservoir bag, the breathing hose, the sodasorb canister, etc., in relation to the fresh gas flow rate. It takes three time constants to get to 95% equilibrium within the anesthesia machine. It has nothing to do with the patient's lungs or respiratory rate. So just talking about the machine and mechanics of that. So for example, um, if we have an anesthesia circuit that equals a total volume of four liters and our patient is on a an oxygen flow rate of one liter per minute. If we take the volume divided by the flow rate, we'll get four divided by one, which equals four minutes. So the time constant for this specific example would be four minutes. Now we multiply that time constant by three and we get 12 minutes to 95% equilibrium. What that means is that if you have an adjustment made to your vaporizer, it will take 12 minutes before 95% of the volume within your anesthesia circuit is equal to the new setting on the vaporizer. And 5% is still at the old setting. So if we were to take our same example, if we were to say our flow rate was 0.5 liters per minute, one time constant would then be eight because four divided by 0.5 is eight. So if we wanted to get to 95% equilibrium, we would multiply eight by three. So it would take 24 minutes for our circuit to get to 95% equilibrium. If we were to increase our flow rate to four liters per minute, one time constant would then be one minute because we're taking four liters divided by four liters per minute, we're getting one minute. So if we were to get to 95% equilibrium, we'd multiply one by three, it would only take us three minutes. So pretty significant how fast we can see changes in the anesthesia circuit just by turning our oxygen flow rate up. When we're waking our patients up or inducing our patients, we're going from zero to a certain percentage or a certain percentage to zero. So if we want our patients to respond faster, we can actually increase our flow rate and decrease the amount of time to equilibrium. Now, as I mentioned, this doesn't account for the patient's ventilation, which is another factor and extension to the anesthesia circuit. But if we can focus on just improving the anesthesia circuit time to equilibrium, it will also speed up our patient's time to equilibrium as well. If we were to take a look at our non-rebreathing circuits, the benefit of that is, is the minimal resistance. So that makes it really ideal for our, for our small patients. And there's um, less dead space as well. So as the patient, um, the breathing hose connects to the endotracheal tube, there's less space in there where we worry about um, rebreathing CO2 because there's a constant flow of fresh gas through that, um, that connection port. And uh, the disadvantage is the requirement for high, higher oxygen flow rates. So it's going to be more costly. It's going to increase body heat loss. It's going to increase the amount of inhalant that we're wasting as well. 
the other disadvantage is that if our oxygen flow rate is too low, and specifically if we're not monitoring our CO2, we run the risk of rebreathing CO2. And for that reason, if you're using a non-rebreathing circuit, you have to have capnography monitoring in place. Both the rebreathing and non-rebreathing circuits have a reservoir bag. And the purpose of the reservoir bag is to provide a reservoir of gas that will change in volume during the patient's breathing. So essentially opposite of the lungs. As the lungs expand, the reservoir bag collapses. As the lungs um, deflate, the reservoir bag increases. So it's a variable volume to offset uh, the variable volume within the patient's lungs. The reservoir bag collects expired gas from the lungs along with the fresh inflow of oxygen inhalant gas mixtures. This bag is also manually compressed during positive pressure ventilation. Um, When you're trying to select a bag size, it should be equivalent to the patient's minute ventilation. So the minute ventilation refers to the volume of air entering into the lungs in one minute. And a way to calculate that is to multiply your respiratory rate by your tidal volume. The respiratory rate under general anesthesia is usually around 5 to 10 breaths per minute, but on the higher side as your patients get smaller. And then the calculated tidal volume is going to be anywhere from 10 to 20 mils per kg. Now, it's important to know you have to calculate your tidal volume off of your ideal body weight. So if you have a patient that weighs twice as much as it should weigh, you're going to artificially get a tidal volume that's twice as much what it actually is. So really, really important that you're calculating your tidal volume off of your ideal body weight. So let's take an example. If we have a patient's ideal body weight is 10 kilograms, we're going to multiply our 10 kilograms by our respiratory rate and our tidal volume to determine our bag size. Now, For calculations, I'll generally calculate on the higher end of the tidal volume, which is 20 mils, so that I can get a sense of what the higher volume might need to be so that I'm overestimating and not underestimating. So if we take 10 kilograms multiplied by 20 mils for a tidal volume, we're going to get 200 mils of a tidal volume. And then we multiply that by a respiratory rate. So if we multiply the respiratory rate by five, we're going to get a one liter bag. And if we were to multiply the respiratory rate by 10, we would get a two liter bag. So our bag size for this patient would be either a one or two liter. Now the goal in choosing a reservoir bag is you want it large enough to provide the reservoir of gas, but not so large that you can't visually observe the breath movements. And then the reservoir bag should never be collapsed. So there must always be a reservoir volume available for your patients to breathe in. Okay, next let's take a look at the parts of the machine that are unique to the rebreathing circuit or circle circuit only. The first thing being the carbon dioxide absorbent. So exhaled gas, which contains CO2, plus fresh gas as well, is pulled from the reservoir bag through the absorbent canister and into the inspiratory limb of the breathing hose during inhalation. There's an absorbent present within the sodasorb canister, which is either soda lime, bare lime, amsorb, etc., and it will neutralize the CO2 as it passes through the granules. Resulting product is water, calcium hydroxide, and heat. And it's also important to know that the outcome of this chemical reaction does not affect the inhalant gas concentration. Now, there are routine recommendations to replace the granules because they don't last forever. And so the 
recommendation for replacing the granules is based on hours of use and not set by a time frame. So the granules should be changed as per the guidelines listed on the packaging of whatever product you, your hospital purchases. If you're running a case and you notice a change in color, like the white granules are turning blue or purple, and it appears that about 50% of the granules have changed in color, that's another indication that when that case is finished, you should probably change the granules because a lot of them have been exhausted at that point. Now, it is important to know that the color will revert back to white after some time. So this is less reliable, but more of a reference to use when you're running a case. And if you see a visual difference in the amount of white granules that have changed color, if it's significant enough, then it should be an indication to go ahead and change those granules after that case. Capnography will actually detect when the absorbent granules are exhausted because you'll see uh, the presence of inspiratory CO2. And then when you're looking at the consistency of the granules, fresh crystals or granules will crumble, whereas exhausted crystals or granules are very firm. The other part of the machine that's unique to the rebreathing circuit are the unidirectional valves. So these valves... um, are how we have the gas flowing in a constant single direction. We don't get a backflow of any volume. So when one valve is open, the other valve is closed and they change based on what part of the respiratory cycle we're in, whether it's inspiratory or expiratory. Now for both circuits, the rebreathing and non-rebreathing circuit, we have gas coming into the anesthesia circuit. We need to have a way to remove that volume as well. And so volume leaving the circuit will go through what's called the adjustable pressure limiting valve or APL valve. Now keep in mind, this is not the pop-off valve. So the pop-off valve is either open or closed, uh, but the APL valve is either open or closed, or it can also be set to varying pressures by partially closing it. The APL valve allows excess gas to exit from the breathing circuit to offset the inflow of fresh gas. When the APL valve is open, gas exits the breathing circuit when the pressure exceeds one to three centimeters of water. The reason there's a little bit of back pressure within the APL valve is that this allows for the volume within the anesthesia machine to fill the reservoir bag first and then release through the APL valve. So if this you know, the the gas is going to pass along the path of least resistance. And so if the APL valve was just an open valve, the volume coming into the machine would go into the machine and then immediately go out through the APL valve. So we have to have a little bit of back pressure. And if you look at the manometer on your anesthesia circuit, you'll notice that when you have it hooked up to a patient and the reservoir bag is full, that pin doesn't go to zero. It's usually sitting around one to three centimeters of water. That's what it is intended to do. Now you could also partially close the APL valve and that will actually increase that back pressure. And that's also known as positive end expiratory pressure or PEEP, which we'll discuss in another episode in further detail. But for the most part, the APL valve is left open. And then when the APL valve is fully closed, that's how we would provide a positive pressure ventilation breath and how we leak check our anesthesia machine for any leaks of the inhalant molecules. 
The anesthesia machines may also have a negative pressure relief valve, which will allow an inflow of room air into the circuit in the event that there's not enough volume within the circuit for the patient during inhalation. So this valve prevents the anesthesia circuit from dropping below atmospheric pressure, which could result in complications within the patient's lungs, such as negative pressure pulmonary edema or NPPE, which is not good news. Now, as the gas exits through the APL valve, it enters into our waste anesthetic gas or WAG system. So the WAG system removes the excess gases from the breathing circuit and releases them into the atmosphere outside of the work environment. Now there are two types of WAG systems. There's an active WAG system and a passive WAG system. The active WAG system uses a vacuum to remove the gas. It requires a system of regulators to prevent the vacuum effect from reaching the patient's lungs. The volume enters after passing through the APL valve and collects into a reservoir system that will hold that volume if the outflow is is greater than the scavenge system. So if there's more volume going into the scavenge system than the, the vacuum, that reservoir bag in the WAG system will start to fill up. Now there's positive and negative pressure regulators within this interface as well. And this can be dangerous because if the reservoir bag fully inflates, instead of that back pressure volume going into the anesthesia circuit and potentially causing an increase in pressure within the circuit in our patient's lungs, it will actually release the excess pressure into the environment. So this is dangerous because it's introducing unfiltered inhalant molecules into the room um, during conditions of the overpressure and will expose the team to those inhalant molecules. And if the vacuum on the WAG system is set higher, it will collapse that reservoir bag and then pull volume from the environment rather than pulling volume from the anesthesia circuit, which would cause the reservoir bag to collapse and there not to be enough volume within the anesthesia circuit for a patient's next breath. So the negative and positive um, regulators are important. They do play a role, um, but it is something where you have to monitor and make adjustments to your vacuum setting because every patient is going to have a different flow rate. You don't want to have just a standardized I set every patient at two liters per minute for the flow rate because you're just wasting um, oxygen and inhalant molecules. You know, it's more costly for your hospital. The other WAG system we have is the passive WAG system. So the passive WAG system does not use any sort of negative pressure or vacuum, but rather relies on atmospheric pressure to release the expired waste anesthetic gases into the environment. The passive systems use either a filter that usually has activated charcoal to absorb the volatile agents before the gas is released into the work environment, or it will sometimes just provide a short channel that will release the gases outside of the work area. Now, it's important to note that the filters that are used um, must be replaced after a certain time and the time and weight gain is usually dependent on the specific brand. So you always want to refer to the manufacturer user guide on what that weight gain uh, looks like. So our hospital uses the F-Air canisters and the instructions are right there on the canister of how to use it. It says weigh it initially, document that weight, weigh it before every use, weigh it after every use. And once you've had a 50 gram weight gain, then the um, charcoal absorption has been exhausted and you have to toss it out and get a new one. 
So the next thing I want to go over is some team and patient safety items with regards to the anesthesia machine. And the first thing I want to talk about is pressure checking or leak checking the anesthesia machine. So anytime we have a change made to the anesthesia circuit, be it changing the reservoir bag, the breathing hoses, refilling the vaporizer, changing out the soda sorb, anything, um, you want to make sure that you're performing a leak check to make sure that the machine is still in good working function and not at risk for leaking um, inhalant molecules into the environment. So this is a patient safety um, sort of checkpoint within the day and something that should be performed every single time. The way to perform the pressure check or leak check is you want to start by making sure you have an oxygen supply to the anesthesia machine. You want to make sure that you have the breathing circuit that's appropriate for your patient. Make sure that the fresh gas outlet is connected to that uh, circuit. You want to make sure there's a reservoir bag attached, a breathing hose attached, and then you want to close the APL valve and occlude the patient end of the breathing circuit. So you're creating a chamber. So there's no way for the volume going into the circuit to leave less through a leak somewhere. So you'll start then by turning either the oxygen flow meter on or pressing the O2 flush valve and filling the breathing circuit until the manometer reaches 30 centimeters of water. And then you want to turn off or remove the supply of, of oxygen. So if that's pressing the O2 flush valve, you'll unpress the, the valve. Or if you're using the flow meter, you would turn the flow meter off. Now you want to hold this pressure for 10 seconds. If the pressure doesn't hold, then that means that there's leaks present. And you're looking at the manometer, so it should stay at 30 centimeters of water. If the pin starts to drop immediately after removing the oxygen supply, you want to then turn on the flow meter slowly until that manometer pin stops dropping to determine the rate of the leak. Now, in human medicine, an acceptable leak rate of less than 0.35 liters per minute is okay at 30 centimeters of water. So if the leak is beyond 0.35 liters per minute, you'll have to go and do some additional troubleshooting. If there's no leaks present and everything is holding, the next thing you want to do is open the APL valve to release the pressure from the circuit. You do not want to remove the occlusion from the patient end of the breathing hose because that immediate release of pressure can aerosolize some of those sodasorb granules, which is very dangerous to the patients. And also, if you release the pressure by removing the occlusion on the patient end of the breathing hose, and then you get distracted and walk away, your APL valve is still closed. So if the process that you do with your leak checking results in opening the APL valve before you're done, you'll never accidentally leave that APL valve closed. Now, if there is a leak present uh, that's beyond the 0.35 liters per minute, then the next thing you want to do is start to recheck some of your systems. So you want to make sure that that APL valve is completely closed. Um, you can try replacing the breathing hoses or the reservoir bag to see if that resolves the leak. If you're using a rebreathing system, you want to check the sodasorb canister, make sure that it's um, nice and tight and sealed. Sometimes the granule particles can get along the rim of the canister that will prevent uh, that tight seal. And then also look at the unidirectional valves for cracks on those chambers. You want to make sure that the fresh gas outlet is connected to the circuit that you're testing. 
And if you still can't find any leak, then go ahead. You can either spray soapy water or I like to use the waterless shampoo over all the connections, bags, lines to look for any gas bubble movement to identify the source of a leak. I have found leaks on reservoir bags. I have found leaks on breathing hoses. I have found leaks on the tubing of oxygen from one point to another that's just cracked over time from use. And I've seen leaks from the soda absorb canister. So uh, leaks can be everywhere and it shouldn't be something that's ignored. You always want to make sure that you're identifying where that leak is coming from. And if you can't find the leak and no one in your team can find the leak, then you'd want to reach out to the manufacturer, whoever services your machines to have them come in and assess uh, and perform some maintenance to see if they can determine what the leak is. Because sometimes it's it's something that you can't control. We had to replace an APL valve once because despite us closing it all the way, it's it wasn't fully depressing pressure. So that wasn't a risk for the staff environment, um, but it was something internal that we that had to get replaced because it was faulty equipment. If the anesthesia machine is tipped or bumped or knocked over, there is a risk of the inhalant liquid entering into the bypass chamber of the vaporizer, which would result in an increased delivery of inhalant the next time the machine is used. So because of this, it is advised that anytime an anesthesia machine tips over or gets bumped significantly, the unit should be serviced before further use. And then similarly, the CO2 absorbent granules can enter into the breathing circuit, which is damaging to the respiratory tract if they are inhaled. Now, what happens if you're running a case and you believe that the CO2 absorbent has become exhausted? So you see inspiratory CO2 on your capnography during your case. That can sometimes happen, um, and you can actually correct it after the case is finished. So if inspiratory CO2 is noted during your case, Increasing the oxygen flow rate to a rate that's greater than the patient's minute ventilation will essentially turn the rebreathing circuit into a non-rebreathing circuit. Since the fresh gas volume entering into the anesthesia breathing circuit is greater than the patient's inspired volume each minute. So when the fresh gas flow rate is increased effectively, the inspiratory CO2 will return to zero. So you do that, and then when you're finished with the case, you'll go ahead and, um, and change the soda sorb. The last thing I want to talk about is using the anesthesia circuit for providing pre-oxygenation delivery to our patient. So there are residual inhalant molecules within the anesthesia circuit. So when we use the anesthesia machine and provide oxygen, pre-oxygen to our patients, we're actually delivering those residual inhalant molecules into the surrounding environment, exposing team members to the potential waste anesthetic gases. So I did some literature search to look at washout times, which there's some information and data published in the human side, because um, if they have cases or patients that they're going to anesthetize that are at a risk for malignant hyperthermia, they actually have to remove all molecules or risk of any molecules of the inhalant because those are what trigger that sort of hyper um, hypermetabolic state and reaction to the molecule. So uh, there are several types of anesthesia machines out there. There are several factors that go into it, including the fresh gas flow rate, so the oxygen rate, and um, 
in human medicine, they actually will change out the sodasorb canisters. They'll autoclave the reservoir bag, the breathing hoses. So anything that's removable, they'll actually remove and replace and clean before um, using using the machine for a patient that has suspected malignant hyperthermia. And so the, there's actually a lot of varying data regarding how long that washout period will take. And some studies talked about running oxygen flow rates of five liters per minute for at least 20 minutes removed a good amount of the residual inhaler molecules whereas other studies said it took 150 minutes, for example, at fresh gas flow rates of 10 liters per minute. So that being said, um, it's very hard for us to say we have 20 minutes and want to waste that much oxygen um, to flush out the um, anesthesia circuit to a point where we're not worried about exposing staff to those inhalant molecules. So that being said, I, I do actually recommend just using a different source of oxygen. So whether that be if you have a wall unit, just disconnecting the oxygen line to the anesthesia machine, plugging in another um, flow meter that just provides oxygen through some sort of tubing uh, to provide pre-oxygenation for your three minutes, and then swapping back to the uh, anesthesia machine. Okay, and that brings us to the CARES Action Challenge for this episode, and that is uh, to be kinder to yourself. It's my question for everyone, including myself, because I am guilty of this, but have you ever found that you judge yourself in a situation uh, that you wouldn't consider judging someone else in if they were in that same situation, be it that you're struggling to learn a new skill or forgot to do something? If the answer is yes, then I challenge you to give yourself some grace the next time you find you're being hard on yourself. And I am a guilty of this too. And so I also have to challenge myself to remember this and to give myself a little bit of grace as well. I think we are our worst critics. And I will leave everyone with this quote um, from an unknown author. Um, and that is, you will never speak to anyone more than you speak to yourself in your head. Be kind to yourself. And that's a wrap. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope there was information discussed that will be helpful for you in your day today. If you have any feedback or suggestions on this or future episodes, including joining me to talk about anything anesthesia or veterinary medicine related, or hey, even life lesson related, really anything that you're passionate about, I'd love to hear from you. You can email caresvetmed at gmail.com or connect with at CaresVetMed on Facebook, X, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. This podcast is available through Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, YouTube, and on CaresVetMed.com. Please leave a rating or review on this or any of the episodes to help encourage new friends to give us a listen. It would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, I encourage us all to take a moment out of our day to take pause. And remember why we chose this profession. The days may be long, the cases may be challenging, but watching a pet reunite with their family makes it all worth it. Take care, friends. <laughs>